And we are in 2 Samuel chapter 4 this evening in our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us here this evening and you don't have a Bible, we sure want you to be able to follow along. So there's men coming up the aisle right now. If you just wave to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow through the chapters that we'll be going through this evening. Following the death of King Saul and David's return uh, to Israel from the Philistine city of Ziklag, David uh, began to rule as king in Israel, but only over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And he reigned over that single tribe of Judah in the city of Hebron for a period of seven and a half years. And then the other 11 tribes, they refused to acknowledge David as God's anointed at that point as, as the king. And they sided with Saul's uh, surviving son by the name of Ishbosheth and uh, the very powerful general that Ishbosheth had in Israel, the northern 11 tribes, a man by the name of Abner, who was also a relative of King Saul. Ishbosheth confronted uh, Abner with having sexual relationships with uh, one of King Saul's concubines, which was a threat, uh, kind of a power grab, open kind of threat. Uh, Abner was insulted by this confrontation, though he never denied the accusation because it was true, and then threatened Ishbosheth that he was now going to take his loyalties and the loyalty of the 11 other tribes and bring them alongside David, basically to abandon him, Ishbosheth as king, and then unite all of the 12 tribes of Israel behind uh, David. So Abner came to David. They had made an arrangement for that uh, to occur. And, uh, but before all, everything could kind of get rolling, uh, Joab, uh, a nephew of David, and uh, one of his key military men proceeded to assassinate Abner and, uh, uh, because of his killing of Joab's brother uh, Asahel. And so here's where we find things now as we begin chapter 4. And when Saul's son, that is Ishbosheth, heard that Abner, who was really the power behind the king, had died, that is, been assassinated in Hebron by Joab, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. So Ishbosheth, very much a puppet king, he had to wonder, well, if they've, king, if they've killed the power behind uh, the northern 11 tribes, Abner, then uh, what would keep them? He's, he feels defenseless. What would keep David? It, because he doesn't understand at this point in time that this wasn't an action of David. So if David has killed this general, then what keeps him from marching straight into Ishbosheth's living room and uh, killing him as well? And so both the king and all of Israel were troubled uh, by the news. Now Saul's son had two men, Ishbosheth, who were captains uh, in his army, and the name of one was uh, Baana, and the name of the other was uh, Rechav. But we'll look for something more English, except if I have to clear my throat. So they were the sons of Rimmon, uh, the Berethite of the tribes of Benjamin, for uh, Beeroth was also part of Benjamin, because the Berothites fled to uh, Gitaim and, and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a, uh, had a son, so uh, that, that survived the death of Saul and Jonathan and his brothers in battle. But this son was lame in his feet, and he was about five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. When Saul news uh, came that Saul had died in battle against the Philistines, Jonathan had died in battle against the Philistines, two other brothers had died in battle against the Philistines. And so what that meant is, is if you were a surviving blood relative of Saul, that meant pack up and run for your life because now they're going to come in and kill all of the... The Philistines potentially could have come in and killed all the blood relatives of Saul. And so this nurse uh, grabbed uh, this young boy. His name is Mephibosheth. 
and uh, took him up, began to flee. Uh, somehow in the haste to flee, she dropped him. Some way he fell and he became lame. So she probably dropped him or fell on him, uh, probably broke his ankles. And in that ancient world, not having the ability to set them properly, uh, he becomes lame for the rest of his life. So he's introduced to us here. We'll uh, meet him again, not this week, but in a coming week uh, as, as we journey through the book. Then these two sons that we talked about here earlier, the sons of Rimon, the uh, Beroffite, uh, Rechab and Baana, they set out and they came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. So the king is resting uh, and still in bed at noon, so probably a guitarist for a rock and roll band uh, at that time. He's probably resting because of the heat of the day and uh, taking kind of a little siesta as it would be, you know, customary. So he's lying on his bed at noon, and they came there all the way into the house, and they feigned as, it, that they were coming into the house uh, into the inner portion of the house in order to get wheat. Nobody would have been uh, suspicious of this. These were high uh, officials in the army. It wouldn't have been unusual for these men to come in, get wheat in order to feed their uh, soldiers. And so all of this looked very normal. They got through uh, the security more easily than you can get through. Well, uh, anyway, so... Uh, they got all the way through feigning that they were going to get wheat and they stabbed him and them in the stomach and then Rahab and Ba'ana, his brother, they escaped. And when they had come into the house, he was lying there on his bed in his bedroom, very, very vulnerable, absolutely innocent, no cause for killing him. They probably had a sense that the whole swing of momentum in terms of the leadership of, of Israel was swinging toward David and very much away from Ishbosheth, and so they figure they're going to help David out and they're going to help God out uh, by eliminating Ishbosheth and killing him and so they struck him and they killed him they beheaded him they took his head as an evidence of his death and were all night escaping through the plain to bring this head uh, to, to David. And so as they're making their way uh, through the, all night on that journey to David in uh, Hebron, they are uh, probably very, talking very excitedly about how David will receive this news and that it will translate into some kind of position of power for them. And they assume that David is like them. That's what they would do for someone who did this for them. And uh, they're going to find out that very painfully that David is nothing like them. And so they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged. So they draw God into this as if God, he was involved with it, has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. And so they present the head to David, declaring Ishbosheth to be David's enemy and uh, one who had sought David's life. And, and they uh, th say that God is actively involved in, in their action. And so uh, they view this as like a, a righteous action of revenge uh, because of all the mistreatment of Saul and his family against David through all of the years. And so they present the evidence of, of the head uh, to him. So trying to gain a position of leadership where they kind of see the handwriting on the wall that David's going to become the most powerful man in Israel very soon. David answered these two men and uh, said to them, As the Lord lives. <laughs> Let's look at God's a different way of how he views this. Who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Basic, these guys, their hearts already have to be sinking. Because what David is saying is, I never needed your help to overcome Saul. I never asked you to murder anyone to elevate me as the king. God certainly isn't in this. God doesn't need your help, much less the murder of someone in order to accomplish uh, his, his will here. And so 
God is the one that has preserved me all the way through. And when someone told me, speaking of the Amalekite that brought news to David of the death uh, of Saul on the battlefield, saying, look, Saul is dead. He was thinking to have brought me good news. And I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. Now this verse 10 gives us insight into why David had the man struck down, the Amalekite dead, in his camp, because this was his motive. He had taken and brought these, the crown and the, and the bracelet of, of King Saul to, uh, to David, brought excitedly the news of, of Saul's death with the idea that he would be rewarded. David then said, how much more? You're worse than this Amalekite. How much more when wicked men, now their hearts really have to be singing because he's calling them wicked men, have killed a righteous person in his own house on his own bed. David held no ill will toward Ishbosheth. Uh, he was simply the son of King Saul. It was in the mind of everyone but God that he would be the next king of, of Israel. It was only the normal thing for Israel to follow him as the king. It was up to God to put David on the king. And so here you, you've killed someone who wasn't worthy of death at all. And you've killed him in his own bed as place of safety. Not on a battlefield or facing him, you know, face to face in, in, a, in a battle where he would know what was coming. You sucker punched him and, and killed him when his guard was down. And therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? In other words, shouldn't I now execute you for your cold-blooded murder of this man? And so David commanded his young men uh, to execute these two. They executed them. And in addition to executing them, they also cut off their hands and feet. Uh, the instruments by which they had performed this uh, terrible act, and then they uh, hanged them by the pool uh, in Hebron. But David then had them take the head of Ishbosheth, all that he had of his body, gave it a proper uh, burial in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. And so he ordered them executed. He ordered actually their bodies to be uh, mutilated and this kind of mutilation, the removing of hands and feet like this, uh, was basically communicated to everyone that these are men who do not deserve a respectful burial because of, of their crime. Now, he takes this body, and uh, David has the body hung by the pool at Hebron. Now, in Hebron, this is a very major city, and it's David's capital city at this point in time. And the pool is where you would go and get water. In other words, this was a place where everyone in the city would go to get water at least once a day. And so he hangs the, these bodies up there as a communication to everyone that I don't need this kind of help. And this isn't the way we're going to do things where I'm king. I'm not king where Ishbosheth had his palace. I'm not king over the other 11 tribes, but I'm the king in Hebron, and I'm the king over the tribe of Judah. And we do not reward cold-blooded murders. We do not promote these kind of people in the kingdom that I oversee. And what would be true of Judah, the tribe of Judah where they were, and the rest of the nation would happen when David ultimately became a king over all of it. And so he was just communicating this. I didn't have anything to do with this. I played no part in this. And if uh, in my kingdom this is not going to be a might-makes-right kingdom, it's going to be righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach, to any people, and so he uh, made that loud and clear. Every kid, every woman, every man that would go to get water, wow, they'd look at it. And God uh, believed in the deterrence value of, of all of this. Now, David is very, very early in his uh, reign as king, and he's really facing a lot of challenges in, in, with the assassination of Abner and here the assassination of Ishbosheth and all. And it's really a test of his character. 
How is he going to respond to this? It's a real test of his leadership skills. Does he just say, oh, oh well, you know, he's going to die anyway? What kind of a person, what kind of is he? What kind of a stand was he going to make? And David, early in his reign, he, he's making one good decision after another, after another, after another, because God has spent ten plus years in his life building that godly character into his life, preparing him with the character that he would need to rule righteously when he became the king. It, was, it is a long time to wait ten years for God to fulfill a promise in our lives, like David had to wait in order for to ultimately become the king even of one tribe in Israel. But here he finds out very early on he's facing one test of his leadership and his character after another and he realizes, wow, I needed and need every bit of the godly character that God has built into my life over these years. And it's true of every single one of us in our ministries and in our service to, to the Lord. Now, chapter 5, then all of the tribes, and the all speaks of the leaders of the remaining 11 tribes of Israel, they now came to David in order to recognize him properly as the king of the whole nation. And they came to him, and by coming to him at Hebron, it was kind of a, a recognition, a sub submission, a, a demonstration of it. And they spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and flesh. And also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. And therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And so now they recognize David as the king over the entire nation. This happens seven and a half years, as we're going to see in just a moment. He rules in Hebron for seven and a half years. So on top of the ten years of preparation, got another seven and a half years. You've got to be patient when you're serving the Lord. You're going to be a king somewhere. It takes a lot of preparation. Now they, they want him and ask him to be the king on the basis of three things. Number one, that he is flesh and bone, flesh and blood, that he is a descendant of Jacob and, and a member of, of the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, just as every descendant of Jacob was. They also wanted him to be king because of his proven uh, track record in terms of uh, leadership and victory in battle. He was already a tested, proven military person and you wanted a strong military person to be your king in Israel in those days. It was a dangerous world in those days, just as it is today. And then they also, and it's very interesting here, the third reason that they wanted him to be king, as we're told there in verse 2, is they acknowledged the fact that God had called him to be the king. So in, they're not entirely innocent in following Ishbosheth as the king simply because he was a descendant of Saul. It appears that Abner knew, everybody knew, about that anointing of David by Samuel to be the next king of Israel in Bethlehem, you know, dozens of years ago. And, and so here they finally acknowledge that. And, and there's a great celebration that occurs here when we get into First Chronicles, which details this event a little bit more. They go into this great three-day celebration of feasting and all of the prominent men and military men come from all over Israel and they just eat and eat and celebrate and, and all for uh, three days looking forward to what the nation would be under David. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, that is, over the entire uh, 12 tribes. And uh, he reigned for 40 years. And, uh, and, and so he lived to the age of 70. And in Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and uh, Judah. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. So you notice that word against David and his men now. They're looking for a capital city 
of these united tribes. Hebron is not going to work out. It's too far to the south. He wants his capital city of Israel to be an administrative center for the land, but also the spiritual center of the land, which we'll get to in in just a little bit. So this is what his expectation is. Hebron is in the area allotted to the tribe of Judah, way to the south, so he can't have people coming all the way from the north, all the way that far down into the south, and expect it to be, you know, efficient uh, spiritually or administratively. Additionally, if he made Hebron the capital of Israel, he would have probably been accused of being playing favoritism towards his tribe, the tribe of Judah, because that's where it was located. He didn't really want to have a city way up in the north uh, for the same reasons. So he wanted something centrally located in the land, and uh, and when he and 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 for whatever reason. He knew exactly the city that he wanted, and it was the city that was known before David as the city of Jebus. Uh, It was held by the Jebusites, and after he conquered it, it became the capital of Israel, and we know it today as the city of David or as the city of uh, Jerusalem. So they... The, the men, the military, come up against the Jebusites to take that city. Now, the Jebusites, except for a very, very brief period during the conquest of the Promised Land uh, under the leadership of Joshua, the, the Jebusites during that time, they were displaced from uh, Jebus or Jerusalem for a short period of time, but apparently they almost immediately retook it. And through the whole period of the judges, we're talking about 400 years, they have held that city. That's, that has been uh, in, in their hands. And one of the reasons they were able to hold on to it was is a very a wonderful city, very well situated for defense in all directions. The ancient city of David, uh, on a trip to Israel, each, uh, each time we go there we visit the ancient city of David, and you see that it is surrounded on three sides by three great valleys. So to attack the city of Jerusalem is to go down into a deep ravine or valley and then come straight up toward this city. So it was a, a, a city that was easy uh, to defend, and so... Uh, that made it very, very attractive also to David as the, as the capital uh, city. I think that David, when he was in uh, Jerusalem, is just a stone's throw, so to speak, uh, away from Bethlehem. And I think that when David was growing up in Bethlehem as a good Jewish boy and he looked over at Jebus, he looked over at the future Jerusalem, and he saw that it was held by the Jebusites, I think it irked him. Uh, He looked at that city, and it was the most beautiful city to him. Not what they had made it into, but beautiful in its situation, where it sat where it sat, surrounded by the valleys and all. And I think in his mind all along he thought, when God's plan comes to pass, I'm going to make that my capital city. David would later write in Psalm 48, verse 2, describing Jerusalem, He said, it is beautiful for situation or location. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And the great king, he's not speaking of himself, but he's speaking of the Lord. And so David, I think, had had his eye on that for a long time. Now he has the military resources to take the city. And so they bring this attack against the city and the Jebusites spoke to David. They taunt him and they say, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. And they thought to themselves, There's no way David can take this city. So they shout down off of these walls when they see David there with his men. And they said, We can put the, the blind and the lame on these walls and they'll be able to repel any attack that you might bring against us. Again, giving an idea of how confident they were in, in, in defending the city and how easily defended uh, the city uh, was. And so they felt very, very confident that even David couldn't take it 
from them and that David is foolish here for even uh, trying. And the Jews had been unable to cast them out for hundreds of years, and so why would this be any different? And so they taunt him. And then nevertheless, that's an important word, uh, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And here's how it was taken. David knew how the city could be taken. Again, this guy knew the, he knew that whole area like the back of his hand. The little shepherd boy taking those sheep all over the place. He probably had gone all around that city of, of Jebus and growing up as a kid. So he knew where the water supplies were and all. And so David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. And so David gives his men the battle plan and in essence says this city can be taken if someone will go into their water source, which was outside of the walls of the city, go up through the rock channel that uh, was used to bring water into the city. Oh, if you didn't like spiders or you're claustrophobic or you didn't like the dark, you wouldn't want to do this. Again, every trip to Israel, we go and, and we see all of the sites related to this. And uh, I'm a little claustrophobic on things these days. And uh, so... the. You know, when Joab, Joab is ultimately going to take David up on his plan, David gives him the plan, but you need someone brave to do it. So Joab and takes some men, and they go up in the dark in this very, very tight stone tunnel, and they make their way, and they surprise the Jebusites who never expected to see anybody come up out of their water supply in the city, and they were able to take it. So Joab in doing that, making his way through all of that, was like probably an eight-hour MRI. You know what I'm saying? Not the open MRI. Not that sissy open MRI that I always ask for and they never give me. The tight little MRI that they squeeze you into and then asked you if you're okay. <laughs> so anyway, enough about my problems. It's wonderful therapy teaching the Bible here. It's hardly teaching the Bible, is it? And so therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And so they take the city, and David then dwelt in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David, and David built all around from the Milo and inward. So he began to uh, increase the fortifications of the city so that it would become a capital city uh, kind of proper and able to defend it. And so David went on, and he became great, and here's the reason that he became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. And then Hiram, king of Tyre, and Tyre was a Phoenician city to the north of Israel, very, very prosperous uh, people at that time, um, experts in uh, the, the handling and, uh, of, of, of wood, uh, masons, stone masons. They were the builders of, of their days. If you could find someone from Tyre who was going to do an addition on your house or anything like that, you had the best in those days. And so the king of Tyre sent messengers to David and sent him cedar trees and carpenters and masons. All right. And they built David a house. So this guy looks at David and, and he, without asking anything, he ships these guys down there with all the materials to build David a palace uh, proper. And, and this, to have something built in cedar. Later on when David wants to build the temple, he's going to say to the Lord, Here I live, I live in a house of cedar. And the Ark of the Covenant's out in the tent. Nobody had a house like David had the nicest house in all of Israel at this point in time. He could, have, he could have never dreamed. All, ten plus years he's living in caves and running for his life and all, and then somebody does this out of the goodness of their heart toward him, and this is what he ends up with. It would be like you were able to hire the best craftsmen all around the world to come in and build you a palace and have them build it in and give it to you. That would be pretty nice, wouldn't it? Now I've, got, I've set you to coveting. But this is what happened. 
And so, as a result of this, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. It's a funny thing about David. When Hiram does this thing for him, David is very happy for the house. I mean, no mistake about it, in the same way any of us would be happy for it. But what was the greatest blessing to him was the encouragement that it was to him that somebody else gets what God is trying to do in my life and through my life. And when Hiram recognized him to and acknowledged him as the king of Israel, David realizes now, okay, now that understanding of what God is doing is reaching beyond Israel, now into the nations that surround uh, us. And so this, and now they're wanting to have alliances or they're wanting to have some kind of a diplomatic relationship with Israel. And so David now begins to realize that he's been raised up as the king of Israel, not only to be influential in Israel, but also in the surrounding region. And David took more concubines. Naughty boy! Sometimes he makes me do that. He took more wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. And also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Uh, Shamua, uh, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, uh, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, uh, Japhia, Elishama, uh, Eliada, in Elith, Elet. More or less. <laughs> now David, he just continues to disobey God's word on this whole issue of one man, uh, one woman for life. And uh, he just continues to add more wives, more concubines, more children, even though it's a absolutely prohibited in the law of Moses for anyone, but specifically prohibited that kings would multiply wives to themselves. And so uh, David is, is, in all of this, he's following the example of all the kings around him. In the pagan world, he's drawing his example from the pagan world around him where a king was esteemed uh, more or less highly on the basis of how many wives that he had. And wives were expensive in those days. And uh, so you had to have considerable wealth to have a lot of them. And uh, so in power, and so he's, this is the kind of trap that he's, he's set himself in, in, into the middle of. The interesting thing, and it's a very important lesson, because as David is doing that, on the one hand, you look at his life and you say, look at how God is blessing him. God is blessing him and blessing him and blessing him. And yet, look what he's doing here in terms of willful disobedience in this area of his life. And by continuing to marry all these wives and have concubines that he won't even marry, but they're just for his sexual pleasure. What he's doing, it, it looks like he's getting away with something, but he's not getting away with something. The, the bomb is ticking. In any time, any of us begin to get comfortable in an area of willful disobedience to God's Word in our lives, the great temptation is to look and say, well, you know, I know that that's wrong. I know it's grievous, but look at how God is blessing me. Look how good God is to me in, in the midst of all of this. And to begin to think that God's silence or His lack of immediate judgment on my disobedience as being an endorsement of my disobedience or that He's winking at it and it's okay. David is allowing an area of his life to absolutely swing completely out of control. And one day he's going to take a look in, in the cool of the evening at a woman that is bathing that he can see from the wall of his palace. And he's going to, in, because he has set this whole course, he's not showing discipline or restraint, he's not learning what obedience to God's Word in this area of his life would produce in his life, he's headed for a train wreck. And I think it's important, it always ministers to me, that each one of us in our walk with God and our service to the Lord 
if any of us sits here tonight, but I plan it in our hearts for the future too. If we sit here tonight and there's an area of open, flagrant, or even minor willful disobedience to God's Word and we say, but God is continuing to bless me. Never look at it as God is saying, you're different, you're special, my commandments don't really apply to you in this area. The shoe will drop in a minute one day in the future and you don't want that to happen. God is not endorsing our sin because He doesn't judge us the moment that we engage in it. God is giving David a lot of room to repent. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it and he went down to the stronghold. And the Philistines also went up and they deployed themselves in the valley of uh, Rephaim. So here are the Philistines. David becomes now the king of this united 12 tribes, and they don't like this. They don't like what they see. We don't have any great record of the Philistines attacking David or Ishbosheth or Abner during the seven and a half years that Israel was essentially in a civil war. The Philistines just looked at them and said, Let them kill one another, let them fight with one another. It keeps them in disarray. They're no threat to us as long as they're doing that. But when they saw the nation unite under David, now they, now they recognize, now this is getting serious because Israel under David can become more powerful than us. And so they launch an attack against David because they're threatened by what they're seeing. Have you ever noticed that every single time God does something wonderful in your life or He does something to expand your influence for the kingdom of God, maybe at school or in a neighborhood or a workplace or, or in a church or something like this, God asks you to take a step of faith and you take that, that there's always considerable warfare involved against that. We have an enemy too, don't we? And when we take this kind of step, our enemy, the devil, is threatened by it. And I think it's very good to remember, sometimes that attack of the enemy, I mean, it can be uh, so hard. I mean, it can be so intense, you can almost smell the brimstone coming from his nostrils. And, and so, so fierce is it's happening, and it's always good to remember in his attack against us, there's something that God is doing right now that is a threat to him. There's something that he doesn't like. He doesn't like what he sees God doing here. And that is helpful to bring perspective into our lives when we are attacked. God is doing something great. The devil doesn't like it. I can't wait to see what this turns into. And so there's always going to be warfare associated with the life of, uh, of faith. And don't think that the older you get in the Lord, that you pay your dues in the early years and then it gets easier. It doesn't. I don't want to make anybody feel bad. It gets worse. It gets harder. As long as we're growing in our relationship with the Lord and thus in our influence for the kingdom of God, He's always going to attack us. I think that because there is in our nation... And, I, and I, again, I don't, want, I don't want to beat up the body of Christ or the bride of Christ, but I don't consider everybody who claims to be the bride of Christ or a Christian to be a Christian. But there is such a strong, observable move away from the Word of God and the exhortation to obey the Word of God as a Christian that the number of people who do, the number of people who are less concerned about being cool and really concerned about being obedient and living this life so that the generation that follows us can have examples like we had that came before us, that pool is getting smaller and smaller. That's just the fact of the matter. Nothing a revival couldn't change in two minutes I remember reading Leonard Ravenhill. He wrote a lot on revival as a new Christian, and I think he, I'll paraphrase it, but he said something like, God can, in a revival, God can undo in ten minutes what men have done in hundreds of years. And it's true. 
Absolutely true. But in the meantime, the devil is able, because he only has finite resources. He only has so many demons to throw at God's people worldwide. But if that group of serious Christians, the smaller it gets, the more he can concentrate against that group of people. That's just the way that it is. But the Bible says when the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard. He just gives us greater grace to be able to stand. It is not that we're some great thing or better than anybody else, but we want to make a difference in this world. We want people to see Christ and the life uh, that He produces in a human being as we live for Him. But it's going to mean greater and greater warfare uh, for, for Christians. And so it just means that He's threatened by your life, which is an encouragement in its own way. So they deployed themselves, the Philistines, in verse 18, in the valley of uh, uh, Rephaim. And so Rephaim was to the south of Jerusalem. It was very, very favorable ground for battle. So they, they've taken the best ground uh, for a fight against the children of Israel. They've, got, they, they, they've chosen the best. The problem is they've got some really crummy gods and Israel's got a great God, so the high ground doesn't really, uh, isn't the decisive uh, matter. So what does David do? Now he's being attacked and all. They've got the, the best ground for battle, leaving David with inferior ground. So what does David do? What well, we should all do. And uh, David prayed. He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? He asked a series of questions. Number one, shall I go fight them? Sometimes without prayer, sometimes we just think, oh, yeah, these are just no-brainers. You just do it. Not with David. Shall I go up against the Philistines, number one, and then even more importantly to the Lord, will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless. Oh, I like God to say doubtless. You can underline doubtless. It's underlined in my Bible. You don't have to. But it would be a great mistake as you read your Bible later if you don't. <laughs> Go up and I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. How wonderful to go into battle already having the promise of victory. And the fact of the matter is in our own, our own battles that we fight in a Christian warfare, the, the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. The book of Romans teaches that. More than conqueror. It's a very carefully chosen phrase by the Lord. A conqueror is someone who is victorious after the battle. When a person is more than a conqueror, that is a person who is victorious before they enter the battle because of God's promises. That's our position in the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And here's a picture of it in David's life. I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand, the promise of victory. And so David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, apparently with uh, uh, just a straight-on frontal attack against uh, the strong lines of the Philistines. And uh, he defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. And therefore he called the place of that place Baal Per Azim. And so a after the incident, so uh, one of the, I hope everybody in their childhood uh, was able to do something like this, is, is, they, is they made that frontal assault against this great line of the Philistines. They just penetrated it right at the center. And when they broke through, it was just like, water breaking through a levee. It just began to give way. And sometimes in the winter we'll see a levee give way and the pictures of it on the news and all. And once that thing breaks, you just pour in. And that, that's what happened. One of the great experiences, I think, of being a kid is when it's raining and the water's coming and the whole deal and you take that dirt and you take that mud and you build that dam and all and then you just create that little crease right in there and then the water begins to pour through and wash the whole thing away. Well, I like doing that as a kid. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that was happening. It was less destructive than a levee. 
So this was, a, I mean, it was just a decisive route that, that they had a great battle that God, victory that God gave them. In fact, it was so great that the Philistines left their images, their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. It's a terrible God that you can lose on the battlefield. It's just lying on the battlefield. Help me. Help me. Somebody help me. I don't know, you know. It's a terrible thing when you've got to carry your God out into the battlefield and then He can be abandoned there and He needs help getting off the battlefield. It's crazy what people will worship when they reject the worship of the true and the living God. Isn't it true? It's crazy what people worship. What you can wreck in an intersection. What can burn down in a moment in time. And so here are these gods that they've got to carry around. The gods that can be captured in battle. We have a, a god that can never be defeated in this way or captured. We t- we're told later, as David and his men carried these idols away in First Chronicles, that uh, he gave them their just due. He burned them uh, until they didn't exist anymore. David just utterly destroyed them and their influence in the land. And then the Philistines went up once again and attacked with their remaining forces, attacked David once again. They deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim, the same place, took the high ground, probably carved out some new gods or whatever gave them the confidence to to tackle this again. And so David said, all right, this is a no-brainer. I serve the God of the frontal assault, the God who breaks through the enemy's lines like a water going through a levee or something like that. That's not what he does. Even though all the circumstances are the same, David goes to the Lord and asks him in prayer for what to do now in this circumstance. It's very easy and it's very tempting the longer we walk with the Lord to feel like we've got Him wired. We understand, you know, that, all right, this is what He did when I was a new Christian and uh, so um, because He defeated my enemy or He gave me victory in this situation in this way, then He's going to always do it that way. And then the next thing you know, somebody's wrote a book about it and it's a bestseller in Christianity and everybody's assuming that God is always this way because it happened in this man's life in this way. But, but here God, as David seeks the Lord and, and, and it's such a temptation in ministry, I exhort myself so easy to lean on experience and history with God rather than saying, all right, Lord, I don't know what you want to do in this situation. I'm seeking you, same circumstance, seeking you in prayer in case you want to do something entirely uh, different. And it's important to do that. Very easy to get in a rut in our Christian lives and in our service and assume that God's always going to do the same thing the same way and then you end up missing the supernatural of the Christian life because very often God wants to do things differently because He receives glory in a different way as He does it differently. And here David recognizes that God doesn't lead His people by a formula. He doesn't lead His people by a formula. So important for us as Christians in the Western world to recognize that. We love formulas. We love to reduce God to a formula. We love to reduce how He works to a formula. And then we'll pay all kinds of money to buy the book for the formula or to go to the seminar to learn the formula. But He doesn't operate that way. He doesn't operate by a formula. But He operates through prayer and through relationship. If God could be figured out, and I think one of the reasons that God wants us to seek Him constantly in prayer and then operates in a different way as we do seek Him in prayer is that if God always operated by some formula, we would develop a relationship with the formula and we would forget the relationship with God. It's one of the ways that He keeps us uh, dependent upon Him and close to Him. And I think that it's very important to understand that wherever in a ministry or an individual Christian's life 
wherever you see victory occurring among God's people, it's not because someone has stumbled onto some kind of formula, but it's because someone is praying and hearing the Lord on a regular basis. And so often in the ministry, everyone's looking for a formula. There is no formula. It's a relationship with God and prayer. That's where it's found. It'll save you reading an awful lot of books to just do it that way. And so therefore David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to him, You shall not go up as a frontal assault, but you'll circle around behind them. You'll ambush them from behind and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be that when you come behind their lines and you're stationed there ready for attack in front of the mulberry trees, when you hear the march, the sound of marching and the tops of the mulberry trees, so maybe, you know, some kind of a sound of angelic beings beginning to engage in the battle, as soon as you hear that sound, the Lord said, then you shall advance quickly. In other words, charge, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And so David did, very different battle plan, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. And so the Philistines never again would be strong enough to attack uh, David or Israel. Uh, really, in the rest of the history of Israel, would they be strong enough uh, to, to threaten Israel? Their power was permanently broken at this uh, at this point. Well, we'll stop there tonight. And then chapter 6. Wow, I'm kind of glad we didn't get to it because so much is in that chapter as well. Man, what is in there? This is a gr- it's just great lessons in there. Just excuse me for a moment while I just... You know, it's, it's a funny thing. When you read it for, for the next time we head through all of this, you have one of the greatest... I won't teach it this way, but you have one of the greatest passages on marriage in all of the Bible uh, centered on this interaction between Michael and David on how not to do marriage. And uh, so we'll get into that next time. If the worship team would come forward... Maybe 